You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on November 9th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, Q&A about business innovation and managing life. And looks like we have a whole bunch of questions here. I hope I'll have a chance to um, uh, get to a decent number today. So I had a question from Aaron about how do you prepare for your keynote talks about new technologies and Wolfram language features? Well, the first thing is that I don't start preparing them until as soon beforehand as possible, because I found that there's a tremendous tendency for things that have been being developed, you know, there's a year-long development process, and everybody knows that it's supposed to be presented on a particular day, has a tremendous habit, three days out, it's not really quite ready, you might as well wait until you're like one and a half days out to actually do the preparation because you just don't know if it's going to be ready or not. You don't know if some new build of some new version is going to be ready or whatever else. Um, so I tend to leave it until sort of the last minute. Now, I've usually had uh, some people helping me collecting material, and they've probably been working for several weeks, a month, more than that, collecting material. And then in the end, it's a question of what, what goes into the demo and what doesn't. You know, I have to say, I would feel worse about the kind of uh, last minute sort of way of doing this, except that I know, for example, Steve Jobs used to do exactly the same thing. And uh, we were involved in a few of his demos, and it was like, uh, there's just a big row of possible things that might go into the demo. And it's like, okay, this one works well enough, let's do it. This one doesn't work well enough, we're punting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of the only way that I know to do it. Um, now... Uh, you know, there's often a lot of complexity in doing so. So in terms of giving demos, you know, I've done live coding demos for, oh gosh, I think the first one I did was in 1980, uh, perhaps 81, no, 1980, I think, was my first live coding demo. And it was obviously at the time, it used this strange thing called the light valve projector, which was a very early LCD projector. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just using, I think, a terminal to do, you know, a, a, a character-based terminal. But so I've been doing live demos for a long time, and I could tell you all kinds of funky stories about things that have happened. Like I remember, well, there was an important moment, which was when I could bring my own computer to do the demo. Uh, it was the case by the time we were back, let's see, I did a big world sort of tour in 1991. And on that tour, I couldn't bring my own computer. It was still too big, too clunky to bring my own computer. Um, and so we had to <clears throat> get computers set up at each location. I remember the computer that I had, I think it was in Munich in Germany. I pressed the go button to switch it on and literally the computer exploded. Um, and uh, not very violently, but it would, you know, smoke came out and so on. And that was a big drama to get another computer. You had the audience, but you didn't have a computer. And that was big sort of drama to get that to work. The thing that has been a notable thing to me in giving live demos is 
you know, the places where you think, oh, it's going to be really challenging to get the projector working and all this kind of thing, those are the easy ones. The places where you're like, oh, this is going to be totally trivial. This is, you know, a very high-end place. They've got all the equipment. Those are the ones where some crazy thing trips you up. So it's kind of a, almost a level playing field in terms of, of what's involved. But in terms of actually giving a live demo, uh, you know, there's a certain... I often give demos that I've never given before, not for things like uh, keynote presentations for uh, new product type things, um, but in terms of just everyday talks that I give, I'm constantly doing live demos I've never done before. In fact, just recently we were, I was starting to collect some of the demos that I've done because often in front of live audiences, I've done what turned out to be fairly interesting demos. And it's like, these are good little snippets of, of, of demonstration of orphan language. Let's just use them. And so we're going to be collecting some of those. But I think the sort of the important thing about live demos is to believe that you can do it. That's the first step. And to not be like, oh my gosh, I couldn't write this code in real time. Well, uh, you know, if you're experienced enough, you probably can in, in Wolfram language. I mean, I, I think it'd be absolutely hopeless in a, a standard programming language. It's just like, uh, like, like that's not a realistic thing to do because not enough happens per sort of character typed. Now, in terms of the keynote type things I've done, we have technology now, I'm pretty sure it's available in the function repository that lets you create a palette that is a, essentially an auto-typing palette. Usually we just use it in the mode where it's just pasting things in. So typically I will have created a notebook which has a bunch of inputs I want to use. And then I say, make a palette out of that. Not only is it inputs, it's also URLs and things like this. Uh, that creates a palette. I put that on a secondary screen. I use that. I click buttons on that palette to auto paste things into the actual active notebook that I'm using. That saves kind of the typing time. We actually also have technology to auto type it. That's actually very relevant. If you're, for example, giving a, uh, a sort of uh, a taped course or something like that, where you don't want to have to think about what you're typing um, uh, at the time when you're talking about it, but this is a way so you can auto-type and it kind of looks uh, a little bit easier to understand what's going on when when it's being auto-typed character by character with little character delays and and random distribution of character delays and so on, rather than just boom, here's the, here's the answer. T typically when you start off doing a, a class or something and you're doing it by you know very sort of crisp production values recording you'll want to do some auto typing like that to begin with to get people the idea of what's roughly going on and then when you have larger inputs or people have gotten used to that then you can just do a boom you just paste in the results now the other issue in in giving kind of keynote talks about functionality is kind of threading together all the different things one has to talk about and in the past, I used to really try and make heavily thematic kinds of uh, of arcs of that story. I kind of gave up because we have so much to talk about and there's so many different things that are of interest to so many different kinds of people that I pretty much just decided there's going to be little modules about this, modules about that. And sometimes I even think of mixing it up a bit because I want it to be the case that people who are interested in sort of very mathy content there's a thing for them and people who are much more interested in kind of uh, software engineering type, type things or machine learning. There's a thing for them that comes fairly soon thereafter. So people aren't just like, oh, my gosh, when's he going to finish talking about the math stuff? So that's, um, that's that kind of thing. Now, sometimes there are 
sometimes there are pieces of demos. P people will provide kind of demo material and it'll be very elaborate. And it's like, if I can't understand the demo, I'm not gonna show the demo because I won't be able to communicate it effectively in a short enough time. It's got to be something that's very, you know, cut and dried, straightforward thing. And that applies, sometimes there are demos that involve additional machines, hardware, you know, showing uh, operations that happen on, on other kinds of, you know, deploying something to a, a this, that, or the other thing. And sometimes it's a little bit weird because it's like, well, conceptually, this is very impressive, but there's nothing to show here. You know, it's like bits are going down a wire and nobody can see the bits going down the wire. And to kind of have telemetry from what's happening will sort of be, that will be the whole demo. So it doesn't, it doesn't end up being a thing that's worth demoing. A few points on that. Well, let's see. Uh, from um, Chak here. Uh, what barriers currently still exist that keep AR and VR from being widely useful in the workplace? Well, I think the real challenge is what are you going to do with them? I mean, people have said for, I remember using a VR system back in 1990, perhaps. And people said, it's going to be the future. It's going to be the future for architectural design, for like drug design and molecular visualization. It's going to be the future for gaming, et cetera. Well, I mean, it's had some success in gaming and virtual worlds kinds of things. I think kind of architectural design, gosh, I mean, first thing there is the difficulty of making real 3D imagery rather than just plan and elevation. That I think that was, um, well, 20 years ago, I remember that um, uh, being involved in a big architectural design project and getting the 3D, even though you had an AutoCAD or something, really good plan elevation type stuff, getting the full 3D geometry is very non-trivial at that time. It may have gotten easier, um, but that's the first thing. There's not much that you can do that is very interesting in architectural design, let's say, with VR without having actual 3D imagery. Um, I think my, my impression is maybe that's gotten a little easier, and I don't know whether the whole uh, kind of... Um, image generation, machine learning image generation, which kind of helps you fill in details of images and things, maybe that might be more quite transformative for this 3Dification of things. I don't know. I haven't really looked at that. Um, because that's sort of the challenge is, is how do you really get the geometry? And it's just a huge amount of work to get that geometry. Once you have the geometry, then you can kind of go to town on, on sort of seeing these different views. Now, I don't know how useful that is, I have to say, whenever I, you know, I've had a VR systems for, oh gosh, I don't know, 20 years, maybe something like that. And I use them so rarely, it's really just embarrassing. Um, and, you know, occasionally, like with our physics project, where we're visualizing hypergraphs, oh, I should say something here. Back in 1991, 1992, I was starting to think about our physics project and I was starting to think about this kind of network model of space time and so on. I was starting to think about these networks updating and so on. I had this kind of vision of, oh, it's like a giant spider web and it's all updating. It's very hard to understand what's going on in it. And we can kind of see these areas that are, you know, bright orange or something where it's updating and so on. And I had this vision of, I want to be in a VR system and I want to be able to kind of pick my way through the spider web, pulling on pieces of it and kind of, kind of getting a sense of what's happening in this kind of evolving network universe and so on. 
Okay, so that was sort of the vision, and I'd seen early VR systems back in 1991, and well, we're still not at that vision today. And we've tried a variety of times. We've built things that are related to this. It's both a lot of work to build something like this, to build a sort of interactive, you're inside the graph, pick, pick up pieces of it and so on. And it's also a, a thing where for me, sort of, well, you know, you go into the VR world and it's like, you know what? Well, let me say something else, which is, you know, in studying kind of doing computer experiments, things like this, people will often say, oh, why don't you make more movies? And, you know, people say, look at this cool movie. It's got all these things moving around and flying around and shooting things off and so on and so on and so on. But, and then I say, I don't really understand what's going on in this movie. Let me make a picture that is just like one slice in space through time. Then I've got a picture and I can really just examine that picture and kind of think about that picture. And my, you know, I can be thinking as I look at the picture, and I can be looking at different pieces of it and so on. Whereas if I'm watching a movie, it's like I have to be thinking in real time about what's going on in this movie. Sometimes you get an indication from that, but it is not, for me, a very good form of a visualization for something you're really going to think about. Something that's kind of a cool demo, great, but something you're really going to think about, hard to do. And I think with VR, it's even worse that, like, let's say I'm inside the VR spider web and I'm pulling on pieces of it. And like, I have no idea what I did. And, you know, we did some experiments, what was it, two and a half years ago now for the physics project of VR visualization of our hypergraphs and so on. It just wasn't very useful. I, I couldn't really tell anything from it. Uh, it's it's a little bit more useful. You know, I have some 3D printouts of these things. That's a little bit more useful. You can pick it up and turn it around. I think that being able to just have it on the screen and move it with a mouse is fine for the 3D thing. But this idea of the singing, dancing, moving thing, I found that very hard to cognitively kind of get much out of it. Now, in terms of other sort of uses of VR and so on, another one that people have often talked about is kind of the VR uh, programming, VR trading, these kinds of things where people sometimes have lots of screens. You know, it's funny because I have, I have a total of, um, well, I have four screens right now and my primary uh, sort of workspace computer, but two primary ones and other ones for special purposes like doing Zoom and, and things like this, where, where it's aligned so that I'm kind of looking at a screen that is aligned with the camera and things like that. But um, I have to say, I have been feeling recently that some of the things I've been doing are just like, they are so multi-windowed that I'm I, you know, I kind of almost feel like, oh, I should add a few more screens here to be able to do things. And, and I suppose I can imagine a time when you're kind of like in VR and it's like you've got your sort of virtualized desktop and it's, you know, placed in different places in VR. I don't know whether that really makes sense. You know, I have to say, even the feature that exists on certainly Mac OS where you can kind of like zoom in and see all your different windows all aligned as thumbnails, I don't use that very often unless I'm really lost. And the other thing of, oh, let's make the screen look like your desktop. I mean, this, this kind of model of how to organize things that um, are sort of like piles on your desktop, you know, I'm not, you know, that's what we all do. I, it's not my favorite thing, really. And uh, sort of I'd like to have a better way to organize that. You know, I remember back in probably 1979, visiting Xerox Park, where a bunch of modern user interface technology was invented, and seeing for the first time a windowed 
window operating system and, and people are showing me, you know, oh, you copy, you paste, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, you can't be serious that your ability to copy paste something depends on whether the window is on top of another window. That is just a crazy thing. That couldn't possibly work. That would just be super annoying. And I always remember that every time I'm in a situation where I'm trying to drag a file from one, you know, a file browser window to another, and one of the windows is obscured or some other application gets focused and things. I kind of remember that very early demo. Of, this couldn't possibly work. The interesting thing, and it's sort of an interesting thing in terms of assessing computer systems, is it did more or less work. You know, most of the time it kind of does what you want. There are corner cases that are completely horrifying and which bite you from time to time, but mostly it just works. So it's hard for me to know when we talk about sort of a VR programming environment and, you know, windows all around you and windows on the ceiling and windows on wherever else, whether that's something where, or, or even things where you can reach out and place kind of virtual monitors and things, whether that is something that is going to be useful or whether it's just going to be a gimmick and a waste of time. I mean, the very fact that the mouse, which is kind of your your kind of direct manipulation type thing of moving things around on the screen, that turns out to be really useful. One could imagine a 3D version of that that's implemented, implementable in VR that's similarly useful, or it could just be a total mess. I don't know. Um, and I think you know there are things that we can readily do. We can place papers on a desk, and that's kind of our model for the Windows system. Uh, because we don't live in the, you know, on the ISS or something, we can't just place things in space and have them stay there. Um, so we haven't really had the the sort of human experience of being able to have a 3D desktop. Uh, I, I wonder, actually, I'm I'm kind of almost wondering uh, uh, to ask astronauts whether they've whether they've done that, whether they maybe in modern times they're just screens and there isn't a lot of paper. But in in older times, you know, did people routinely like put their uh, sort of um, I, I suspect not, you know, put their kind of um, uh, the the instructions up here and another one here and another one here, kind of laying them out in 3D space. I suspect not, because I suspect that just the slightest air current and you've kind of your 3D desktop has been has been blown up, so to speak, or blown off course. Um, obviously, that wouldn't happen in VR um, unless you programmed it to happen. Um, and so that sort of remains unclear to me whether the sort of the 3D desktop makes sense. And obviously, to determine that, one has to await sort of high enough resolution displays, et cetera. For me personally, I'm still having trouble with VR headsets. I haven't tried the very latest, probably, have I? Maybe I have. Um, but I'm still getting motion sick from the lag associated with the, you know, what my ears record versus what my eyes see in terms of the, the motion of VR headsets and so on. You know, on the subject of AR, it's a slightly different thing because in AR, the big thing there, I think is just gonna be, when is it routine to have kind of an AR thing? It's just like, when is it routine to have a smartwatch? When, or when is it routine to have your phone with its camera? You know, it becomes routine at some point. You know, people were not walking around with cameras. I've been trying to find some some things, something really obvious that should have been photographed in 1973. But I've asked all these different people who were involved, and nobody seems to have taken a photograph. And uh, some people, uh, the, the British people mostly, so they tend to have, you know, uh, funny sort of wag things to say in their emails, but, but you know, it's like everybody wasn't walking around with cameras back in those days type thing. Um, and uh, 
you know, that became a thing that is in our routine that everybody sort of has a camera in their pocket. Um, and the question will be, you know, when there's a, a good AR glasses type solution and sort of one just routinely has AR on one's face, then there are probably uses for AR that are going to be helpful. I mean, it is the case that because you happen to have a camera in your pocket, there are all kinds of things which you now use a camera for that you would never have used a camera for before. Because in the past, you know, you're carrying around some big thing and whatever, you, you won't use a camera for that. You won't use a camera to record, you know, where did you park your car somewhere? No way you're going to use a camera for that when, when the camera is a great big 35 millimeter thing and you've got to, you know, you've got to develop the film or whatever else. Right? But as soon as it becomes something you routinely have, there start to be uses that make sense, even when they're just once every month type uses. And I think the same thing will happen with AR, that when people routinely have uh, sort of the AR, you know, for example, for me, I wear glasses. I don't actually need them very much, but I do wear glasses. Um, and my eyesight isn't isn't too bad. Um, and uh, uh, my my children make fun of me because I've I've very optimized my my you know glasses so that I really can see well and you know and see very detailed things on a screen or at a distance and so on uh, you know better than sort of your average uh, you know satisfactory vision type thing because one can do that um, and I've done that just because whatever it's convenient it allows me for example on my computer screen to get sort of a higher density of information because I can use smaller fonts and things like this and still be able to see them but in any case be that as it may given that I'm wearing glasses anyway, but once there is sort of an AR solution that sort of just plugs into glasses, then for me, it will be sort of zero cost to be having you know AR everywhere. And once I have AR everywhere, I'm sure there will be a bunch of uses for it. I mean, one thing is from the most obvious kind of, you know, you're walking along, where's, uh, give me the, the sort of the GPS, you know, where do I walk to the, um, uh, kind of you're talking to somebody and uh, it can remind you who is this person, you know, from your personal database of faces or whatever it is. And, oh, you know, here's the here's the information from your search system about when you last interacted with this person, what you might talk to this person about and so on. All of these kind of advising you about what to do. Um, some things uh, and, uh, you know, all of the, oh, let me see my text messages, they're fine. That might be useful, might not be. The teleprompter type stuff. Uh, and then things like visual diffs. You walk into a room and it kind of immediately indicates to you, how has this room changed since you were last here? Uh, those types of things. Um, and uh, saves the embarrassment of, of uh, saying to somebody, don't you look different? And, um, uh, you know, it can say, yes, this person, uh, you know, colored their hair a totally different color or whatever it is. Um, they're trying their purple phase or whatever they might be doing. Um, so in any case, a, a few thoughts. But I think the, probably the transformative thing for AR will be when we routinely have AR uh, capability sort of that we just carry along with us. And then even the small slice of time use cases will be worth doing. Um, so a few thoughts there. Oh my, there's so many questions here and I feel bad because I'm spending so much time answering each one, but anyway. Um, Brandon is asking, saying, I like the fact that I seem to have fun explaining concepts, particularly related to science. Do I ever have to force that? No, not really. 
I mean, if I sound enthusiastic, because I am enthusiastic, I would say that the one thing I've learned about that kind of thing is, you know, I, I do meetings, I live stream some of them sort of all day long. And one of the things I kind of learned at some point is you can come in like an Eeyore to a meeting and it's just like, why are you doing this? I mean, it, you know, it's worth just having that dash of enthusiasm right when you start. It's like, okay, let's get started, you know, let's see the agenda type thing. And there's a certain kind of initial energy that I wouldn't say it's forced, but it's something where, you know, I could imagine myself saying, oh, I just woke up, oh, what's going on? And it's worth just having that little little push to, okay, we're here, boom, let's get started, some energy into that. Once that's happened, you're kind of off and running. You know, I will say a thing about sort of initial energy. When I give talks, uh, particularly in, in, um, uh, in sort of settings with actual physical settings with people there, there's this question about how does it start? You know, it's an interesting thing now that I think about it. As I've been doing these live streams, you know, I'm just sitting here looking at a camera and talking to you all. I kind of gotten used to that. And so for me, there's nothing kind of uh, whatever my emotional state is when I start, it's whatever my emotional state usually is when I start, which is, you know, which turns out to be just fine. But when I give a talk in a physical location, there are things about that physical location that can either add energy or drain energy from me. And, you know, there are situations where you'll be giving a talk and oh, one thing that got me years ago, not so much recently, is you're giving a talk to a very big audience, a thousand people, more than that, whatever it is. And it's a big fancy setup and you're on a stage and there are lights and the audience is completely black. And, you know, the first few times that happened to me, it was quite disorienting because you're literally, you're talking to complete blackness. I mean, when I'm talking to a camera, I'm like, I kind of imagine it like, like I'm talking to some, you know, kind of one-eyed animal type thing where it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, I can have a conversation with it. But the the pure blackness really, really got to me the first few times. Um, and similarly, in, in sort of audience settings, there are like rooms where it's a big cavernous room and there's people there, but they're very distant and they look kind of bored and you can't really tell what's going on. And then there are things where there's sort of been a trend, I would say, at some universities, I think it started in business schools, where you have this kind of little, little tiny amphitheater type seating where sort of there's stacked up rows and it's, it's kind of a very, somehow it ends up, I find those tend to be very engaged. They feel very engaged. It feels like the audience is really, you know, paying attention, you're really having a conversation. It's not like I'm going yak, 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 and everybody else is asleep. You know, I have to say, when I give physical talks, one of the things that can happen is if I can tell the audience is kind of losing me, it's really a, it, it just sucks energy out of the whole situation. And I know I do worse in those situations. And, you know, I, I remember one thing I did quite recently, actually, where the audience was, you know, the, the, um, uh, it just made perfect sense. They would be very engaged. And I hadn't really realized that for various reasons, they'd heard a bunch of the things I was saying before. So they weren't as interested. And as soon as I could sort of sense they weren't as interested, I would say the quality of my, my talk went way down. I've also found that, and this is true for giving talks and for writing things, that kind of 
once that that initial start of how am I roughly, you know, what what is the the, the sort of what is my approach to this audience? That's a very important thing to define. And sometimes I have a very if I can just get the first few couple of sentences, the first couple of thoughts that I'm going to present for this audience, then I'm off and running. And if I can't get that, and it's just like, well, I'm here and hello, we're starting now, and uh, I don't know where I'm starting, that's that's a bad thing. Once I'm, you know, at the beginning with with energy, so to speak, things tend to continue from there. A few thoughts on that. Uh, the question from Mikhail: Do I take part in clinical trials? Well, thankfully, touch wood, I have not had things wrong with me where I have really been. Uh, uh, been sort of in the market for taking part in clinical trials. I think that's always a challenging thing. I, I've known a bunch of people who've been involved with that. Um, it's always uh, it's always concerning because it's something where there's sort of the the criteria. The good news is, typically, if you get into a clinical trial, there's a decent chance it's going to work. Because who wants to get somebody into a clinical trial and have them just be a negative data point for the FDA filing? Um, you know that that's a that's one thing. I would say in terms of clinical trials, my comment would be this: that that the more you understand about what on earth you're getting into, the better off you are. And there's a tremendous tendency in dealing with medical stuff for people to just kind of. Um, uh, for your average person who's never really studied anything about medicine, biology, whatever, to just sort of say, oh, I'll just do what I'm told type thing. Um, it's, you know, my observation is if you know stuff about medicine, biology, whatever, um, it's, you can get much better mileage. And when it comes to clinical trial kinds of things, it's like actually understand what they're doing. And, you know, did somebody think this through and so on? Or is it just like, well, we'll try this. And, you know, we didn't really think through this, this or that piece of it. You know, I, I think one of my personal hacks, I suppose, is I have learnt over the course of time a decent amount about medicine, and uh, you know, I, I consider myself at this point better than a mediocre doctor at um, uh, you know diagnosing things and so on. And it is remarkable when you people tell you about diagnoses they've been given, where it's just like that couldn't possibly be right. It's just like you know, it, it's like. Uh, you know, somebody says there's two things going wrong, but there was one event and it was just like, eh, I don't think so. There's most likely there's one thing going wrong. And, but they couldn't quite figure out what that one thing was. So they told you two things or, you know, it, it's a sort of a common phenomenon that, you know, the young doctors have just been through medical school and seen all the weird diseases will overdiagnose the weird stuff. The old doctors who have been practicing for decades and have you know almost never seen a case of whatever unless they're very fancy you know whatever um, sort of teaching research type hospitals um, they you know they'll just assume it's the common thing and not the weird thing because they just don't see the weird thing um, and uh, so I think the um, this question and, and by the way with diagnosis you know the main it's interesting because. Diagnosis is something that is a skill that comes up in a lot of different fields. It's something in software diagnosis, we're debugging. Uh, there are people who are really good at that. There are people who are bad at it. There are the people who know a lot but can't do debugging. There are people who just have a good sense and are tenacious enough. They'll just uh, you know, get there. And where they also don't 
you know, the, the number one problem of diagnosis tends to be at the beginning, you think, oh, it's five things it could be. And then you go through and you, maybe it is one of those things. Okay, great. Then you're done. Um, and, but maybe it isn't any of them, or maybe you, you, you reject a bunch of them. You know, if it's medical type stuff, it'll be, there's a very low probability. You have this particular thing wrong. We did the test. There's a low probability of that. If it's software debugging, same kind of thing. We, we did the test. We should have seen this in the log file. We didn't see that, you know, et cetera. And so then what happens is you reject all the high probability things and then you don't go back and look at the lower probability ones. That's a that's just a terrible mistake people make because they think, oh, I already excluded that. I know it isn't that. I know that piece of the software system, that medical thing, that's okay. But in fact, by the time you've rejected all the high probability things, you should go back to the low probability one and try and understand whether it's that. That to me is the is sort of the number one thing. The other thing is people get, and it's related to that, they get sort of fixated on one explanation. And then even when some data comes in that makes it clear that that explanation is kind of wonky, um, you know, it's like, why don't you look at this other one? Well, because we're we're locked in on this first one. And that's that's another thing that can happen. But, you know, I would say that in, uh, you know, my, my own little hack for these things is when people tell me about, oh, you know, they're complaining about this or that medical thing, I will kind of like ask a few questions and then actually offer, well, I think it might be this, this, and this. And, and then, you know, then I ask people later, was I right? You know, et cetera. And that feedback loop over the course of years and years has given me, you know, that's, you know, nothing compared to what an actual, you know, doctor on the front lines really doing stuff is going to get. But it gives me some sense of, you know, does one, what is the intuition you need to be able to do medical diagnosis kinds of things? And uh, I see Park is commenting that diagnosis is definitely a potential job for AI. Um, you know, I I have worked on that at various times. I've been interested in you know getting data. It was it's kind of complicated for medical privacy reasons to get the right kind of data. There are places you can get that kind of data. There are situations in which you can get the data, and so on. I think that it is the case that it is, in many ways, a good job for AI that's not been as well executed as it might have been. I think the, the, the primary thing there is there's an, you know, one thing that tends to happen is in medicine, it's like it's very much human logical decision making. And so people say, well, we do this complicated test and we just want to know yes or no. Or we want to know, you know, is the value 7.4 or 9.2? We, we kind of crush down this test into something small. Genomics is one place where that isn't happening, where there's a lot of data. It's also a lot of kind of personal analytics, health monitoring kinds of things. There's, again, just a lot of data. Um, and, you know, it, medicine, in the way it's usually set up, and diagnosis is usually pretty, has a pretty hard time uh, with, the, with the patient who says, hey, let me give you a gigabyte of data. You know, it's more like, well, let's do the five tests that let us make the diagnosis. Now, that gigabyte of data to the right AI should be really useful. But of course, if the AI just does feature extraction and comes back down to, well, there are five features that matter, and you know, that, then you might as well just be doing what you're doing right now. My feeling is that the, the future, ultimately, of medicine and medical uh, activity is, is much more, you know, right now, we go from symptoms to diagnosis, like we've got a code, you know, one of the, you know, an ICD-9 code, you know, one of whatever it is, 30,000 different codes that is the medical thing that is wrong with you. And then we go to the, what's the intervention? What's the thing we're going to do? 
I think increasingly in the future, what one will see is direct from symptoms to what one does. And the what one does will be much more parameterized and the symptoms will not be symptoms. They'll just be the raw data of what was your, you know, which, what, look at every single heartbeat. What happened over the last, you know, million heartbeats and how does that inform something that you do in the, in the sort of uh, uh, some, some action that you take is then a, a very customized action, not just, a, oh, let's switch on this, let's give that drug, something like that. So uh, let's see, Mikhail asks, can Wolfram language screen for disease or illnesses? Not really, we have some information in Wolfram Alpha. Uh, we have some symptom type stuff or we have some things where we've got uh, some standard government databases that go from uh, disease to its symptoms and you can kind of go backwards and do some sort of Bayesian stuff to figure out, given these symptoms, what's the disease? But it isn't very sophisticated. And it certainly doesn't do this thing of taking sort of vast blobs of data and doing things with it. Now, people have done, both customers and people we've done uh, sort of consulting projects for, have built non-trivial systems for doing that kind of diagnosis and for doing things like uh, sort of uh, time series of diagnoses. If you have this and this and this, what's the probability that you'll have these different things? That's been done particularly for some insurance purposes and also for some and, and medical cost estimation purposes, things like that. Um, and also because it's useful to individual patients. Um, but yes, th things like that have been done with our technology stack. Uh, there's much more that could be done. It hasn't been, you know, I have to say, I, I am, um, uh, you know, one of the places where people sort of thought it's going to be a slam dunk, we're going to figure everything out is genomics. And, you know, I first got my whole genome sequenced in 2010, I think, um, and, you know, comes back on a, on a disk drive, basically, and there's your 6 billion base pairs. And then I had, I got somebody to spend a few months kind of digging through that and figuring out what could be learned from my particular genome and uh, nothing dramatic, actually. Um, and then over time, uh, you know, like I, I, had my genome sequenced a bunch of times now. Um, and, uh, you know, there are these services where, you know, when a new paper comes out, they'll send you sort of the report on, um, uh, on how, um, you know, on what your, uh, what that might mean that your, uh, what that might mean for you, because they can see, you know, this paper reported this set of SNPs, you know, single mutations in your, in your, in your DNA, um, and uh, what your values of those SNPs are. And it tells you, you know, based on that, what um, um, uh, what would be, you know, what, what is your likelihood of getting this or that thing? And I have to say, I, you know, to me, it's kind of like a modern, modern version of the um, uh, tarot cards or, you know, crystal, whatever they are, crystal ball type stuff. Um, it's uh, uh, fortune telling. It's, it's kind of modern fortune telling because, you know, I remember like a month or so ago getting something where it says I have a, you know, I don't know what, 3% chance or something to be left-handed while well, I'm left-handed and 10% of the population is left-handed. The one that also was there was I had like a, a very low percentage chance of being somebody who was interested in kind of organizing things and organizing information and so on. Yeah, well, I'm kind of on the on the high end percentile of uh, of organizing information, collecting information, and so on. In fact, just today I got an email, which same same source, 
which told me I had a um, a 34% chance, which I suppose isn't so small actually, of of getting um, a trigger finger, which I managed to give myself through excessive mouse uh, scroll wheel mousing a few months ago. It's it's better now, but but um, uh, so I was sort of. I suppose that number isn't so small. Thirty four percent is not so small. So I maybe shouldn't be as as uh, dismissive of the fortune telling character of that. Um, although I think in the population, it's like it said two to ten percent. I think is the population rate of of that. Over over. I've never had that before. So once in my life type thing. So anyway. Um, Let's see. Oh, RBS is asking, is it possible to change human DNA by intentionally by eating foods or taking medicine? Um, you can affect the telomeres, the end caps of your DNA. Um, you know, people thought they're like 50 end caps, and after your cells are divided 50 times, you're done. And you know, you have to wait for the next generation type thing. But it's become clear that you know, exercise and general healthiness can make telomerase. Uh, add telomeres to the end of of DNA. So so there's definitely some effect on at least the end caps of the DNA. When it comes to the the, the main part, it's no, you you don't get to do that. You can you know you can change methylation of the DNA. I don't think you can change its actual content. You need to go in and uh, you know you could let loose a retrovirus, or you could or, or or you can use gene editing. You know CRISPR Cas9 and so on in principle, but that's a that's a complicated medical style thing. That's not eat more spinach or something to have that happen. Let's see. Uh, Mikhail is asking: Do you try to convince your children to go to specific universities or schools, or do they decide by themselves without any impact from me? I, I have four kids, so I have an N of four. And I would say in my N of four, um, and there's there's one who's just in the process of doing those things right now, um, uh, I, I don't think I have much influence. I mean, the only thing one can do is provide information. Um, and I think that's uh, that's sort of the the right thing to do. And um, and uh, sometimes when, when there's kind of a uh, this or that thing seems obviously to be the case, uh, that you know, if one knows it isn't, then provide the information that it isn't. I mean, I would say that with the whole college university thing, the uh, to me, the thing that is sort of the oh, there's a list of of the from from best to worst. You know, U.S. News and World Report kind of ranks the colleges and many other places as well. You know, from best to worst. That's just a very confusing and and not useful thing, because. You know, all these colleges have different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses, different characters at different times. You know, I think there's a sort of probably a 10, 20 year sort of cycle of things getting better, worse. You know, they're colleges that are just trying to really spruce themselves up and they have a different character from ones where they're kind of coasting on their laurels, things like this. And they're ones where the uh, the way that kind of just the, the set of conventions, the culture of places will vary. And that varies at the level of the administration, at the level of the professors, and at the level of the students, and the kinds of things the students do and find interesting. I think one thing that is always a mystery, well, not really that much of a mystery, but it's a it's a question, you know, when you're an admissions department at a university, what do you think your mission is? Because, you know, if you're an HR department, a recruiting group, a company, the mission is get people who will be productive working at the company. Pretty simple mission. At least 
that's what I assume the mission is. I, maybe there are pathological recruiting departments where that isn't the mission. But in a in a first approximation, it's get people who will be productive in the setting of the company, uh, get people who are going to fit in to the culture of the company. It's it's you know they're not going to be productive. But the number one thing is get people who will be productive at the company. So the question is, how does that translate? And 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 maybe you know you that productivity is something which is not just a matter of the person, it's also a matter of the company and the culture of the company, the needs of the company, uh, you know, the, the interactions people will have uh, around the company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's sort of well-defined. Now for a university, it's a little less clear how that should work. And I think, you know, there might be, the cynic might say, oh, you know, bring people in where, They'll contribute a lot to your endowment in some way or another. Bring people in where they'll be famous and that will make people think your university is cool. Or bring people in where the professors will say, thank you for bringing that student in. I really enjoyed teaching them. Whatever else. Or where, you know, sometimes there are very direct things like sports related things where it's like, yeah, we can get that person. We're going to have a better whatever it is team. But most of the time there isn't that kind of sort of direct recruiting that's going on. And I think the you know the default thing is if you don't know what else to do and your admissions department, just get more students who are like the ones you already have. And so that tends to that's not a it's not a bad strategy, but it tends to mean there are very definite cultures that develop at different colleges and they're self-perpetuating, so to speak. And not because everybody who comes in there decides they have to turn into a person who does X. But because that is the mechanism by which sort of the 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 the, the sort of the the people are are brought in, so to speak, and so I think it's important to understand, uh, kind of as you go to different colleges, look at different colleges and things. It's like, what is that thing that's developed there, and do you like it, and do you fit in? Another thing I, I have to pass on. This is a, a very elementary thing, but you know, you're shopping for colleges. And it's like, what are you actually going to get? And one way to find that out is just go figure out what courses would you take in the first year or two if you went to that college. You could say, oh, yeah, I think this college is great. And, you know, it has a really good reputation. I like the look of its buildings. But then you realize, oh, my gosh, I have to take all these courses and I'm not interested in any of them. And that's that's clearly going to be a lose. So, uh, you know, I think that's a that's a worthwhile exercise. But anyway, a few thoughts there. Um, that's about my level of, uh, of, of control here. Um, okay, Surface commenting, multiple screens are nice, but I feel it's less productive sometimes. So the same thing as multitasking being a myth. Well, for me, you know, I have somewhat definite functionalities for my different screens. And so that helps me to kind of not have, if it was just a big mess, you know, one of my principles about sort of physical things in the world is like, don't have a big set of horizontal surfaces that you can put stuff on because they'll just get piled up with junk. And so, for example, for my desk, one of the things I did, oh, I don't know what it was, 30 years ago now, is I have these pullouts at the front of my desk. And so most of the time, they're pushed in because that's what I have to do in order to sit at my desk. But if I need to do something like, I don't know, sign a document or something, you know, pull out the pullout, then I put the piece of paper on there, do what I'm going to do with it. Or sometimes, you know, for, for whatever special purpose, 
I'll pull out the pullout. I can use that as extra desk space. Now I'm I'm looking at my desk from behind the camera here, and it has three pullouts. Okay, and two of them are pushed in, and the third one has a certain amount of junk on it. But that pullout, I kind of know. I'm a little bit worried that if I put too much junk on it, the pullout is going to like collapse and destroy my desk. Um, and so, you know, I, the cycle time of of junk on that pullout is really quite short. Uh, you know, on the order of a week or two, as opposed to the cycle time of junk on a random table that I might have, where the cycle time might be 10, 20 years. I mean, I remember I had friends in the academic world where um, I, I'm just thinking of one one chap who I uh, knew mostly in the 1980s, who had this office that he'd been in for a long time. It had these, these shelves and so on. And literally the whole office was piled absolutely high with papers. And um, you know, the papers probably down at the bottom there were from the 1940s. Um, and, uh, you know, this whole thing had kind of archaeologically built up. And um, that's, you know, that's what happens to flat surfaces if you don't have a sort of active effort to, to clean them, or, or you're not one of those people who just sort of just congenitally has a clean desk, which is a fine thing. But then if you congenitally have a clean desk, you don't really need the desk in a sense. Um, and so I, I tend to have these approaches where I, you know, I I don't like having these flat surfaces because they things pile up on them, um, unless um, and and I try to have this sort of temporary flat surfaces. That's my that's my little hack for that. Um, so Abhinav is asking, say that feel like the person has a lot of interests. Um, and uh, they study lots of kinds of things. How does one sort of manage uh, learning lots of things? You know, what I tend to do is my life is sort of very project-based. It's kind of like I do one project, then I do another project. And so, and, and, you know, I like to kind of gradually absorb information about lots of kinds of things, although I tend to sort of say, what do I want to learn about this thing? You know, if I'm, if I'm learning about, I don't know, animal communication, something I've been curious about for a long time, never really done a project on it. But I gradually kind of learn more and more and more stuff about it. And, you know, that's sort of gradually helping develop my intuition about what's going on. And eventually, one day, I'll do a project about it. And then I'll really kind of dig in and, uh, you know, and systematically learn what I have to learn. But for me, at least, you know, I find I need kind of proto-projects to kind of hang my learning on. Otherwise, I'm just sort of like, oh, I learned this random thing. I don't know how to fit it into my, you know, brain folders, so to speak. Um, and uh, so th there's that part. And then when I, in terms of deeply learning things, I really try to wait until I have a project in that area, and then I dig deep and uh, and really learn stuff. Because for me, I, I find it hard to remember sort of just random disembodied facts. I mean, I, I often feel like, I'm reading through something and I'm, you know, it's some news, science news type thing or something like that. And uh, I'll see some facts and I'll like, oh, that's an interesting fact. I've really got to remember that fact. And I, and I don't think I remember them very well because they don't get attached to things that are sort of the big structures that I'm, that I'm really, uh, you know, able to think about. So that tends to be my approach. Uh, there's a question here. Any tips for fixing a chaotic file system? My files are scattered everywhere. Well, you know, the thing is, 
what do you want your files for? That's the first question. So for me, it's like I'm gonna, my life is gonna consist of doing projects, basically. So I want my files organized so that when I do a project in a particular area, I will have what I need. Now, the other thing is sometimes files are just like I need an archival bucket. And I want that bucket, and I think I, I talked about this before. I mean, don't be too clever in how you name or think about your files. It's just like, keep it simple. That's a bucket from 1994. That's sort of all of my you know, transactional records from 1994. Put them all together. Yeah, some of them might be related to you know, the business you didn't start, or they might be related. Some of them are hobby versus you know, business versus whatever else. But you know, what's a hobby to you then might not be a hobby to you 10 years later. And, and so just put them all in a bucket where you understand where you would find things. Oh, it, that happened in 1994. Let's look all the way through that bucket. Because often, and when I say bucket, I mean file folders, online folders, whatever else, a conceptually bucket. Um, the uh, you know because what ends up happening is that that the you know the you want to have a quick way to throw something some in somewhere. You don't have to think too hard about it. Then if the retrieval is slow. But you have to do it very rarely. Then, then that's you know, then that's a thing that you know. The bigger the bucket, doesn't really matter because you're going to go through it anyway. For example, the thing I was okay. So I've been writing something which relates to things I've done about a particular topic, second law of thermodynamics, over the last fifty years. And so I have good archives, but my archives are not perfectly organized. And I'm I'm kind of hoping over the next maybe five years or more to have a project where I really get my archives properly organized. I mean, they're, they're not bad. They're in these large buckets, but sometimes there's a miscellany box that was because that was just all the papers that were in a particular place at a time when they got boxed up, for example. And much of this stuff is, is OCR'd and, and uh, searchable, but sometimes you don't even know what to search for. And, um, uh, and so for me, I would, you know, we're going to try and build a sort of a real archiving system based on our technology stack that lets people uh, kind of really organize things properly into dated order and so on. So you can kind of see the sequence, uh, you know, into different kinds of kinds of categories and so on. But I would say that the um, uh, the thing to think about is, you know, can you make fairly big buckets, you know, bankers boxes, whatever they actually are physically, of things, and maybe you have 10 of those laid out on the floor somewhere, and you're going through a bunch of files, and you don't really know where things go, and you just put them into the banker's box to which they most fit. And then, you know, one day when you need to use these things, it's like, well, okay, that's banker's box, you know, number eight or something is going to have that kind of stuff. Okay, let me go through that. Um, that's, and I have to say that for me, and, you know, I always find it very satisfying when I get to Take something disorganized and organize it, and it's a it's an activity that um, is kind of a uh, uh, even when you know if I'm tired or generally whatever not very you know not up to peak productivity um, that's something that I can do and it's it's kind of satisfying. Uh, you know, I have to say one thing that I've noticed. Uh, it was a question earlier about what does one do when I'm sort of stuck in the mud on things. You know, what I tend to do is I save up all kinds of activities that I'll say, I'm gonna do this when I'm tired, when I'm, if I'm sick, if I'm, you know, whatever else. And 
unfortunately, I've accumulated way too many of those things because I've thankfully been been feeling pretty energetic last quite a while. Um, and so the things which are, let me do that when I'm not feeling so energetic, have been piling up and not getting done. But the thing that I find is that there are certain kinds of things that seem to require me to be kind of at my most energetic feeling. So for example, writing. If I'm going to write something that is going to have a spark, a spunk to it, I kind of have to be really kind of like all there and energized. And whenever I'm writing something, when I'm like, I do a certain amount of work when I'm walking on a treadmill or I do work when I'm in some random place that isn't my usual work environment or whatever, and I see what I've written, it's usually a little bit lame. And so I, I tend to now really avoid trying to do things like that when I'm in sort of compromised circumstances. Whereas something like processing email, writing code, those are things where it doesn't really matter where I am. I can kind of have equal performance on all those kinds of things. And, and by the way, I mean, sort of the processing, I get a huge amount of email. And the thing that I tend to do, uh, you know, so, so when I'm working on stuff, I can usually work for, I don't know, I haven't actually timed this, but I, I think it's about an hour and a half, two hours maybe, of just consistent grind, 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 write, 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 do what I'm doing. Um, and uh, the um, uh, and then I kind of feel like my brain is all you know filled up or something, and I have to kind of get up and pace around and do something, and I have to do that for ten minutes, something like that. And I have a terrible habit of going to get somebody to eat at that point, which is a terrible habit. And uh, the only thing I've been able to do is to downgrade what I eat to have lower and lower nutritional value, so to speak. Because honestly, I'm only doing it as a distraction and as a kind of a, an anchor for, okay, I did something else. Now I can go back to, to what I was doing. Um, but you know, another thing that I will do then is to process some email. Um, and uh, uh, you know, that's kind of a way of just sort of, that's a, it's not mindless at all. It takes, takes thought, but it's a different kind of thought. It's a very uh, sort of more pointillistic kind of thought rather than this coherent thing you have to do if you're writing something. Um, Philomena is asking, how do you write into a, you know, Wolfram notebook? That's the, you know, that's my actual where I'm writing things into. I tend to, so, you know, when I'm writing kind of material that is sort of intended to, to publish things, I'm, I'm a one pass writer, almost always, you know, I'll start, I'll write, I'll finish, it's done. Sometimes I'll have to have multiple starts but I don't tend to be a go back and revise. My main observation is once I'm really ramped up to write something, I will write something coherent. If I go back and do surgery, that's the time I mess everything up. In other words, I, I gain more from the coherence of a one-pass writing thing than I gain from the sort of rethinking it and going back and, and doing editing and so on. So that, that tends to be my, my approach. And I usually, you know, it, it sometimes takes me a while to get started in every section that I write. It'll sometimes take me a while to like, how do I get into this? What is what is the beginning? What what once I'm oriented, then I can be off and running. Uh, you know, one of the things that's difficult in a lot of writing I do is some of it is sort of almost opinion writing or essay writing, where it's kind of like I'm writing more or less at output speed and it's just sort of things coming out of my brain. But another kind of thing is where I'm doing research type things. Maybe it's uh, technical scientific research. Maybe it's some. Um, 
something, maybe it's historical stuff, and where the actual process, the actual research takes a long time. And, and that's painful, actually, sometimes, because what happens is I'll, I'll be, you know, writing, 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 and then I hit this research, this tough nut, and I need the answer to that tough nut before I can write more. And whenever I write around the tough nut and just sort of guess how it's going to come out, I regret that. So I really have to solve that tough nut, but that means I'm kind of blocked. And my lovely flow of writing where I was doing so well just gets blocked for a day, whatever it is, as we try and break that tough nut, so to speak. Now, for me, practically, when I do writing, I have this whole set of tools that we built for, for Wolf Notebooks, where I put these extra cells in that are kind of instructions to people who are helping me, like, you know, uh, this picture is obviously messed up, you know, improve it and do this and that and the other, find, you know, I've got some date, find the correct date, check this, do those kinds of things. Those are, they happen to be cyan, so there's the background color, so they they get called cyan comments. That um, And then when, when there's a response, it's in a different color and so on. And that's a, sort of, for me, a pretty useful way. Now, people can do that with various kinds of change tracking. I like this sort of full cell uh, kind of kind of change. I find that a useful way to do it. It's also convenient because it allows one. You've got sort of all the stuff there, and you just delete the cell when you're when you're good to go. And and sometimes when I'm making pictures, for example, I'll make a version of the picture, and then there'll be some details that have to be fixed. You know, standardize the colors in this way or another. And what will happen is I'll go through a version of the of the document where somebody will have added in. My, well, it was my version there, and then there's the new version, and then I just have to look at those two versions, and then I'll delete my version if I if I like the new version, and that way that that's sort of a fast way to to finish that. Um, uh, there's a question here. Um, how much do you use the mouse while writing in a notebook? Boy, I do not know. I mean, I have the data. I, I record every keystroke. I record every mouse move. So I have the data, and I don't know the answer. I do know that I managed to give myself this trigger finger thing in my in my third finger of my left hand by uh, using a scroll wheel on a mouse with my with that third finger and just like ridiculously turbo scrolling because I was doing some some uh, researchy type things where I've needed to just scan through a lot of documents and things. and I, I kind of gave myself a repetitive motion injury or something. Uh, by doing that. Um, Satan is asking, do you have a um, uh, um, preferences in reading hard copy versus digitally? You know, it's interesting because I have some things, like, like for instance, I have some books. They're old books. And I'm doing, I was doing sort of a personal history project. I'm about to do a general history project and I have a bunch of these old books, and um, uh, there's a certain books are nice because there's a certain, you know, you've got the whole thing right there. You have a visceral sense of, you know, what fraction of the book am I looking at now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's sort of interesting because some of the things I was doing, I was like choosing to look at an online version rather than at the physical book that was right there. Um, and, and other things I like looking at the physical book. 
I think the online version has the great advantage. I can, you know, if I want to keep notes, I can just screen cap a piece of it and stick it in a notebook and make a comment on it. And that's how I keep my notes. Whereas in the physical version of the book, I've got a, a very large collection of bookmarks. We have lovely bookmarks that we made for, uh, oh, I don't know, there's some NKS related bookmarks. Um, and I've got the big stack of bookmarks in this drawer behind my desk. And I'll, you know, when I'm doing a project, there'll be books that I have, physical books that are just full of bookmarks. And then kind of at the end of the project is like pull all the bookmarks out and recycle them. Um, but uh, it's sort of a satisfying moment actually. Um, but, uh, you know, that's sort of a trade-off of, of do I do that by by copy-pasting a piece of, of text or or screen capping something and sticking it somewhere, or do I do that by putting a bookmark in the book? And they they have somewhat different utilities. In terms of, of and I did find myself literally in the last few days going literally backwards and forwards between an online version and a physical version of some document. So it's right on the kind of the, the knife edge of which one is better there. Um, I would say that that... Sometimes I, uh, when I'm trying to get sort of the overall picture, I kind of like often the physical book because it does have this visceral sense of sort of where are you in the book type thing. Um, when it's this more kind of structured thing that I'm doing, I tend to be in the online mode more more than the paper mode. Um, and also for some of these books, okay, the occupational hazard problem is that uh, I have a few books that I recently got from a certain source um, where they're moldy and I'm allergic to mold. And so I put these books in plastic bags and things and I, uh, you know, I, 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 it's kind of a, uh, you know, occupational hazard type thing, um, taking them out and, and getting allergies. I did discover the, I, I have a kind of a storage unit with a bunch of, of material particularly actually from my my parents and uh, and earlier generations um, of just material, some of which uh, was not well kept in the past and has some mold. And I I did recently go there to, to go and sort some more stuff, found some interesting things, actually, quite interesting things. Um, and, uh, you know, now that everybody has masks, that, you know, everybody's got masks, I thought, gosh, now I can finally, you know, I, let's just just use a standard, you know, mask, and um, uh, and by golly, I didn't get a mold allergy. So I, I finally found something that I actually want to use a mask for, so to speak. Um, in any case, that's also nice that it's it's socially acceptable now in in some in some situation where you think, oh my gosh, I'm going to get some some uh, you know nasty droplet born disease from somebody that you can wear a mask and people don't think it's it's as horrifying as they might have thought in the past. Park is commenting, you should have an automatic email word cloud generator. That's interesting, actually. Actually, we haven't. I don't think we've really tried that. For a given email, what? Yeah, I mean, most emails I get are not so long. By the time the email is long, kind of all bets are off anyway. I mean, it's you know, it's going to be a challenging thing to get through. And I'm sort of, uh, but it's an interesting idea to be thought about. Uh, let's see. Um, Philomena is asking, does UV hurt the paper? Um, most paper that I have is stored in boxes in an archive room. So it hasn't really seen the light of day. Uh, for sure, 
I mean, I've had trouble with books. Actually, I have a problem right now that, um, okay, silly problem of, of um, uh, you know, I have books and I thought I'll put some, you know, I have some books that are in a particular location that happens to be something, not the books here, but the books um, uh, nearby here that are in a location which can get direct sunlight, but they are also relevant. They get direct sunlight for the same reason as the fact that when I'm sitting there, I can see directly out of a window. And um, that uh, is a place where I do Zoom meetings and things from time to time. And I kind of, you know, I want to have some nice books there. And uh, actually, uh, what I realized is, oh, my gosh, if I can see see outside, that means outside can see and it can see the books that are behind me. And so then the question is, are these books going to get destroyed by UV light? And uh, I think uh, the um, in a place where this is a house and a room that was built 20-something years ago um, that I think were built it put some UV coating on this window because we knew about this issue. And yet it is the case that some of the books that have been there for 20 years have started to, to fade a bit. And, you know, the red ink goes first. And um, that's, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, that's a place where, yes, things get damaged by UV light. And it's kind of a, a pity in a sense that one's putting things there that in another 10 years will have been significantly damaged. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Paul is commenting. Physical books are heavy and bulky. Ebooks are never bigger than your favorite tablet. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've look. I there are too many times when I've like, you know, gone on a trip somewhere, and I'll like, I really am doing something where I need physical books, and I go ship a box of books there, and it's all a big pain in the neck. Um, and yes, that's a pain in the neck. It's much better if it's um, uh, if it's just an online thing. Um, you know, some of the time I'm looking at historical stuff where the only form of it is in a physical book. I was also surprised when I was looking at been looking at archives. In fact, just right before this meeting, the thing I was doing was uh, because I'm writing this piece about some personal history and so on. Um, I was looking at an archive box where the I have scans of what's in the box. But it's kind of fun because what's in the box is scotch taped together uh, images that I used for some papers that I wrote and things like this. And the scanner doesn't see that. The scanner is just flat on, doesn't see it. So I'm like, well, and also some of the things are very big and actually weren't scanned properly because they're just they're line printer outputs and they're very big. And so I, I thought, so I better go and actually, you know, open the box, put it on a table, take pictures of it. And that's a case where the actual physical thing is necessary. The scan is not not good enough. There's another case I was looking a few months ago. I was looking at in the making of the NKS book. I wrote a piece about this, and I actually wanted to find out, look under a microscope at some printouts that I had. And obviously, the scans that we have are you know high resolution for scans, but they're not microscope resolution. So that was another case where one actually had to get out the physical thing. Um, so question: What is the oldest book I own? Certainly, I have ones from the 1600s. Uh, do I have earlier than that? Maybe one from the 1500s. I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to look some of that up. Uh, you know, I've tended to, I have got, you know, when it's a famous book, I don't know, Newton's Principia, something like that, I don't really care about owning a, a fancy early edition of it because 
it's well, I, I will tell you a story there. I many years ago now, it must be oh, 30 years ago almost. Uh I considered buying a Newton spring kippia. Um, it was expensive, you know, a hundred and something thousand dollars. I don't remember how exactly how much. And um, uh, you know, the way that usually works with these kinds of books, you get sent the book, and it's like, do you want to keep this? If you do, send us the money, type thing. Um and you know, I have to say that my reaction to it of this very expensive thing was, I don't want to have this. You know, where am I going to put it? I'm going to keep it in a safe. I'm going to worry about it. You know, it's kind of been, it's been around since for 300 years. I'm just, it's, it's, uh, it's keeper for a, for a few years here. Let me make sure it doesn't get destroyed. And, you know, I'm going to have to keep it in very controlled controlled environment. And if I want to see what's in Newton's Principia, I can go look for that anytime on, online and so on. And, and then the other thing that actually held me back was, uh, you know, realistically, if I bought something like that, I'd never sell it. So it's not really an investment. But if I kind of think of it as an investment, it was an, actually an interesting problem that, okay, this is a history of science little moment here. But, but you know, antiquarian books, their value is very dependent on details. Like you go through every single page, and if there was a blemish on one page, oh, things the value by a big factor. And, and so then in this particular case, there was sort of a piece of scholarship where people just didn't know the answer. Back in the day when books were printed, people would just print off pages and they'd, they'd print a stack of those kinds of pages, then they'd print a stack of those kinds of pages. And the question was, there were actually two versions of Newton's Principia, the export edition and the edition that was sold. And it even says in the book, you know, it's available in the, you know, in the lane behind so-and-so's church in London. You know, there was a bookseller who hawked copies of Newton's Principia, and that's where you got it. And then there was another version that got sent to different places. And there was sort of a question of which one was printed first. Was one of them systematically printed first and then the other one second? And if that was the case, it would have at least a factor of two effect on the price of those things in the market. And some scholarship had been done of people going around to different libraries. There are, I think, 500 principias were printed, maybe, maybe it's 1,000, and maybe two, 300 are extant now. I'm forgetting the, the exact numbers. But, but anyway, somebody went around and looked at a bunch of Principias that were in libraries and looked at the misprints. So as, as the pages got printed, uh, people would gradually sort of fix the misprints. And so a later printed page would have different misprints than an earlier printed page to figure out whether the export edition was before the, the sold by Mr. So-and-so in the whatever, in the lane behind whatever it was. Um, and they couldn't discern a pattern. But the thing that I was sort of, one of the things I was concerned about is getting this as sort of an investment thing, and then somebody does another piece of scholarship. Even if they get it wrong, and they announce, oh, we just discovered that the export edition was printed first. Well, then if you didn't have an export edition one, oh, your thing loses value by a factor of two. So I, I was not, but, but the most important thing was just, it didn't seem to have a lot of psychological value to me to, uh, uh, to own this thing that I was gonna have to keep in a safe. So I, but I, what I have got is a lot of minor uh, old sort of science and technology books. And those are super interesting because you, you can't readily find those. Sometimes they've never been scanned at all. Sometimes they're obscure to find. Uh, like for example, for Newton, one of the books I have of his was his book on the chronology of ancient kingdoms which was a book he wrote right at the end of his life where he was trying to you know, date when was the fall of Troy, when was this, when was that, to compare it with astronomical observations. 
it wasn't a terribly good book on on his part, but it's interesting. It's interesting to see, and it's it's fun to kind of see the see his thought patterns there. But that's a book that you know it's not. I'm sure it's you know I, I have a a first edition of it. But I don't think it's worth terribly much because it's an obscure book. It's not the famous book, um, and uh, so you know that's that's what I for a long time I've, I've sort of I, I collected the minor works of of major figures and things like this. And and just awful, an awful lot of stuff that is uh, kind of um, the stuff that you don't readily find in the obvious kind of you know reprint edition type things, and and that stuff has been very useful to me in historical research that I've done and so on of all kinds of things that I found there that uh, you know even just physically having the books makes it useful, um, and you know have I gone through every page of every one I have no I absolutely haven't, and. Um, uh, you know, it's one of those things I one day would would love to do. Um, I'm I'm trying to I'm very much in a build the future mode, even though I keep on getting dragged into writing about history, and um, that's uh, um, uh, that's just something I'm. Um, uh, some of these cases, I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm doing the history things mostly because I think it's going to be really easy, and then it doesn't turn out to be. But I want to do a good job anyway. All right, I think I have to wrap up and go back to my day job here in a moment. Um, but uh, RBS is asking, do you think storage devices like tapes and punch cards might come back sometime? I wouldn't count on that. I think um, uh, I've been having a heck of a time um, figuring out whether uh, paper punch tape from the very first computer that I used, whether there's any place to read it. We found the tape reader at a computer history museum, um, but uh, you know, on the can one buy it off eBay, it seems like that technology from 40 years ago is already gone, gone, gone enough that you can't even buy it off eBay. Um, we'll see. And punch cards, I don't know. I assume that you could, I don't know how you'd read a big a, a, a card deck these days. Um, I mean, I think with this paper tape, what I'm planning to do is basically just lay it out in strips, photograph it and just do, uh, sort of optical recognition on it from that. Um, but I think the um, uh, for punch cards, hmm, I wonder. I wonder if you can buy a retro punch card uh, uh, reader. I, I'm sure you can. And I think um, in terms of whether it's a useful form as somebody who used paper tape and punch cards, I would say stick with um, uh, you know stick with online storage or. Or portable, you know, or thumb drives or something. I I wouldn't uh, amusing as those things are at a retro level. They were a pain in the neck to actually use. I mean, by the time you would have a card deck and you drop your card deck, and then good luck, you'd have to resort the cards, and it's just a huge mess. Or even you know all those things where you'll be putting rubber bands around the um uh um around the thing to keep the card deck from falling apart. And you put the card deck in the pigeonhole to give to the computer operator and the thing would self-destruct in some way. And it's just like, I'm sorry, we couldn't run your card deck because we dropped it. You know, these are things that I think are, are best relegated to the, to the, well, I, I, the phrase I usually know is dustbins of history, but I think it has to be translated into American, the garbage cans of history, so to speak. Um, I, I think those were those are not things that I would relish seeing come back as a practical matter, other than for retro amusement, so to speak. All right, we should wrap up here. I'm actually about to go off and do a uh, 
uh, day job live stream about Wolfram language design. Um, and uh, well, thanks for lots of interesting questions. I always gets me to think about things I don't otherwise think about. So I appreciate that and uh, hope you find it interesting. And um, until the next time, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.